<clears throat> I was fascinated by a recent poll. They did a, a survey last year uh, asking a representative sample of uh, about 4,000 British adults from different walks of life, various questions, but one of them was basically, do you believe in the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? The results are quite interesting. About two-fifths said no, which is surprisingly low. I think you might have thought there'd be more scepticism in 21st century Britain. And a further, further two-fifths said they did. Uh, and a final fifth aren't sure. Now, um, I don't know where you are at this morning, which of those three um, boxes you'd tick. I would sort of guess that, given the fact that we're in church on Easter morning, probably we'll be skewed um, <clears throat> towards... Um, uh, those who do believe. But I kind of hope this morning that we've got people from all three categories with us. I hope that everybody's welcome this morning, regardless of where we're at on our faith journey, whether we do believe in the resurrection, as we've just heard it read from John, or whether we sort of want to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. Maybe we've been dragged along here by a family member, or maybe we're here because it's tradition to come. It's the one time of year when you do. I think it's quite interesting, if that is you, uh, if I may say so, that the two times of year when people who don't normally come to church are more likely to are at precisely the two times of year when we are celebrating the most unbelievable aspects of the Christian faith, uh, the virgin birth at Christmas and uh, the resurrection at Easter. You're in at the deep end, if that's you, uh, this morning, but we're glad you're here, and I hope that we've got sceptics with us this morning, and uh, scepticism is welcomed. Questions are worth asking. But I thought it'd be worth us just spending a moment or two asking that question of whether it's really necessary to believe in the resurrection from the dead in the 21st century as enlightened and relatively intelligent, hopefully, uh, let's play ourselves on side, um, people this morning, do we really need to believe something like the actual bodily, physical, literal resurrection from the dead. Do we really need to say that bit in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body? Or can't we just sort of leave that bit out or sort of say it with our fingers crossed behind our backs? Uh, isn't it rather tempting to sort of go for a bit of a, a sort of a liberal Christianity, maybe, that appreciates the tradition and the history and the building and the music and the community, but maybe takes the Bible... Maybe we didn't decide to open it because we kind of rather to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. Isn't that what some bishops do? I think they do. We might be asking. Can't we? I suppose the question is, how essential is the resurrection? Well, I want us to focus just for a few moments on verse 9. On that seemingly throwaway sentence in brackets, which says they, meaning we... The other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, John, remember, that's him. He was the eyewitness. He was there. And Peter, the other person who was there. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He had to, John says. And I want to suggest this morning that the resurrection is absolutely essential. It's essential to the Christian faith. If you remove it, the entire thing completely collapses. As St. Paul memorably says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. I mean, that's pretty blunt, isn't it? I think he's right. But it's essential to life as well. If it didn't happen, we might as well not be here and go and enjoy our lunch. But if it did, 
And I believe it did. Keith and Dave believe it did. John believed it did. Who was there? Who was an eyewitness? Who was then willing to give his life on the basis that it did? Peter believed that it did, and he was willing to give his life. He went from denying Jesus, pretending he didn't even know him, to fearlessly proclaiming him and being willing to give up his life. If it did, then it makes all the difference. Here's three quick reasons why. Number one, if Jesus never rose from the dead, he can't teach you anything. Number two, if Jesus never rose from the dead, he can't wipe away your tears. And if three, if Jesus never rose from the dead, he can't bring you to God. He can't teach us anything. He can't wipe our tears away. He can't bring us to God. No guidance, no comfort, no hope. But if he did, then he is the supreme teacher. He's the supreme comforter. And he's the supreme saviour. So first, if Jesus never rose from the dead, he can't teach us anything. Number one, uh, have a look down at verse 16. Jesus says to her, Mary, and she turns towards him and cries out in Aramaic, which, by the way, when you see something which is in Aramaic, the New Testament was written in Greek, but Aramaic is a form of Hebrew. And when we read Aramaic words, and they include the actual word, like lama, lama, Elo, Elo, Lama Sabachthani or something like that. That's an eyewitness remembering the exact words and putting it in in the, in the original language. And she said, Rabboni, which means teacher, first word out of her mouth. She, he says to her, Mary. And she goes, teacher. That's quite interesting. And I think that everybody surely would agree that Jesus is a good teacher, isn't he? All of us, where, you know, regardless whether we've got Christian faith or not, everybody must accept that Jesus' teaching is sublime. You know, the wonderful parables, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your neighbour, love your enemies. I think Billy Connolly, that famous uh, theologian, speaks for many when he says, I can't believe in Christianity... But Jesus was a wonderful teacher. But the trouble is, for Billy, how much of Jesus' teaching has he actually engaged with? Because although, yes, we love the parable of the prodigal son, but if you read Jesus' teaching, the majority of what Jesus actually taught concerned his own divinity. I mean, take, for example, the teaching that we were looking at last week, that Celia, who just led the prayer, she was preaching last week on John chapter 11, a few chapters previously. Jesus rose... Lazarus from the dead, which, I mean, <laughs> if Jesus didn't rise himself from the dead, he definitely didn't rise Lazarus from the dead, so, but let's put that to one side for the minute. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and then he takes the opportunity for a spot of teaching, and he says famous words, I am, they're up there somewhere, yeah, up there. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And you kind of go, I'm sorry, what? And he goes, yeah, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. That's an outrageous thing to teach, isn't it? Extraordinary thing to say. How on earth can he say something like that? But that's the thing, is if the tomb was not empty on Easter morning, you kind of got to say to Jesus, I'm really sorry, but you are not the resurrection and the life. You can't be, and you can't be a wonderful teacher, because if I can't believe you're teaching at its most important point, 
Why should I believe the rest of what you've got to say? If I can't believe I'm the resurrection and the life, why should I believe I'm the vine, or I'm the gate, or I'm the good shepherd, or I'm the bread of life, or I'm the light of the world? Why should we listen, why should we disregard what he says about his own divinity and his own resurrection, which he repeatedly predicted was going to happen? If we can't believe that, then why should we listen to anything else we, he says? We kind of have to do what Thomas Jefferson, American president, famously did, and take a pair of scissors to his Bible and snip out all the bits that he found difficult to believe. And of course, if you do that, you end up with nothing, nothing left. You end up with ribbons. It's like um, a paper chain or something. I mean, Dave and Keith have just pledged to turn to Christ as Saviour and submit to Christ as Lord. Now, what on earth is the point of submitting to the lordship of a dead carpenter? But... If Jesus rose from the dead, if he's the risen and ascended Lord of glory, then his teaching is not just of historical interest alongside the works of Plato and Aristotle and Shakespeare, but it's, as the writer of the Hebrews says, living and active and able to teach not just them then, but us now. Look at what it said in verse 9. They didn't understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So where do we look to for teaching? Do we go to the self-help aisle of the of Waterstones? Do we sort of Google? Do we, I don't know. Where do you get your teaching? If Jesus is risen from the dead, then he is the supreme teacher and his word is able to teach us. If he never rose from the dead, he can't teach us anything. But secondly, if he never rose from the dead, he can't dry our tears. Listen to the distress in verse 2. Mary came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. I mean, that's the first assumption. She wasn't gullible. They're just not people who believe in things like the resurrection. It must be a plausible, natural, rational explanation to rule out first. Maybe somebody nicked the body. That's what happened in the ancient world. They've taken the Lord, and we don't know where they've put him. Verse 11, Mary stood outside the tomb, crying, and she wept. I wonder whether you've cried recently. It's quite interesting having small children um, <laughs> cry all the time. <laughs> Every day. And Fred's bottom lip just goes like that. And then it's just tears. You kind of think, oh, at some point you grow out of it. Because it's just exhausting. Apparently you don't get to about... The average child gets to six or something before they go a day without bursting into tears. Exhausting living like that. But it doesn't mean we're not in pain, does it? I was actually... I don't think I cry a lot. A good movie, maybe. But I was crying about something yesterday, actually. Probably the lack of sleep. Um, but, but there is. It doesn't mean that there's not plenty to cry about. There is. Mary was weeping because death had robbed her of her loved one. That hasn't stopped. There have been a, quite a few funerals since last Easter. I think there are some here who, um, this is the first Easter since the funeral of a loved one. Death looms large. Without wanting to embarrass her, well, can't, she's not here because she's ill. But Chris, our dear Chris, is facing a, a terminal cancer diagnosis. There have been, and there are, and there will continue to be lots of tears. 
But Mary doesn't stay sorrowful, does she? Look at verse 18. After this, she goes to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord, she says, the exclamation mark on the end. And then on the evening of the first day of the week, verse 19, the disciples were together. The doors were locked because they were afraid. And Jesus came, stood among them and said, peace, peace be with you. And the disciples were overjoyed. And I suspect that's kind of an understatement. She goes from tears to joy. Yes, there are tears now. Yes, Mary cried. Jesus wept. We're weeping. But if you're a Christian this morning, haven't you known Jesus' peace and his comfort and his presence with you in your pain? I hope you have. I have. If Jesus is still dead, then that is just (laughs) sheer delusion, isn't it? Pure make-believe. The idea that Jesus somehow can be with you in your pain is not true. But if he has risen, if he has, then in these verses Jesus establishes himself not just as a supreme teacher, but the supreme comforter. I mean, where do you look to for comfort? Comfort eating? Comfort drinking? Jesus is a much better comforter than any other comforter. And one day, the scriptures promise, there will be no more tears. The loveliest verses in the Bible, right at the end, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that would be amazing? He'll wipe away every tear and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things will have passed away. Well, finally, if Jesus never rose from the dead, he can't teach us anything. You can't wipe our tears away, but most importantly, thirdly, you can't, can't bring us to God. He can't get us to heaven. I mean, that is surely why we're here. Look at verse 16 again. Mary naturally wanted to cling on to Jesus, didn't she? Jesus says, Mary, she says, teacher. Verse 17, Jesus says, don't hold on to me. It's quite interesting. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. He says, I've got, I've got something I need to do first. You can't hold on to me. I've got, I haven't ascended yet. That's quite interesting, because if you were here on Good Friday, we would think about these words at the top of the previous page, chapter 19, verse 30, where Jesus died, and he bows his head, gives up his spirit, breathes his last, and he says, it is finished. He finished what he came to do. In one, he finished one aspect of it. As Jesus died, the work of atonement was finished. The sacrifice for the payment for the forgiveness of sins was complete. It is finished. But he hadn't finished everything that he came to do. He still had a couple of things to do on his kind of mission. He needed to rise again from the dead for a start. But he needed to ascend to the Father. He says, I haven't ascended to the Father yet, verse 17. So go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He hadn't done what we say every week in the Creed. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. See, that was Jesus' mission. It was to become a human being, to beat death, to get out the other side, and to get into the presence of God, to enter glory, to sit at the Father's right hand, to be in his presence, and then to sort of punch a hole through and to make a way for us so that we 
can follow in his wake. He came to bring us to the Father. That's why he came. I mean, think of those amazing words that we read at funerals. From chapter 14, just a few chapters previously, don't worry about turning to them, but he said this just a few nights before, on Maundy Thursday at the Last Supper when he'd washed the feet of the disciples. And he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. They were troubled because they knew that Jesus was going away. But he said, ye believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back, take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. You know where I'm going. I'm going to the Father. And Thomas says, no, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why Jesus came. He came to get us to the Father. And that's why we say at funerals, if it's a Christian funeral, we say, as the body is lowered into the earth, or the curtains close, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who will transform our frail bodies, that they may be conformed to his glorious body who died, was buried, and rose again for us. That's hope. If the tomb wasn't empty on Easter morning, then that's just nonsense, isn't it? But if it is, nothing could be more amazing. Where are we looking to for hope? Jesus is the supreme saviour. If it didn't happen... He can't teach us anything. He can't dry our tears. He can't bring us to God. But if it is true, and let, let me suggest that if this is the one time of the year when we do come, and we're just sort of opening up the lid on faith a little bit, and we'll be back next year, let me suggest that if it's true, isn't it worth devoting a little bit more time? Isn't it worth coming back and finding out the rest of what Jesus had to say? Isn't it worth finding out whether it is at least plausible, if we're in that category, we're not sure, that Jesus Christ might actually, that this eyewitness testimony may actually be reliable? You might not know whether it's true, but don't you want it to be? Don't you want it to be true that Jesus is the supreme teacher, the supreme comforter, the supreme saviour? Let's pray.